Hey guys, welcome back into the Sports Mill Podcast. On today's episode, I've got Andrew Sullivan joining me. I think I said on last episode that we were getting away from the NBA, but I lied because I forgot that the season does not end with the NBA Finals. It definitely continues. And in fact, more possibly more of the exciting stuff happens after basketball actually stops playing and we get into the draft and uh, into free agency. So NBA draft has happened. Uh, it's been a little bit of time since that uh, has taken place. So we're going to get to recap everything after the, the dust has settled a little bit. Me and Sully are going to kind of tell you what we thought about some of the picks, some of the winners and losers. And we're going to discuss free agency as a whole and then get into probably the biggest story this NBA offseason, what's going on in Brooklyn. But before we get to that, let's start with the draft, Sully, because and I think it was kind of a surprise what happened at the top, obviously. Um, we, we mentioned it many times that the top three were all kind of interchangeable depending on how you looked at it. And I think I've decided, you know, I've heard this, that if something is a consensus in a sports world or everyone is saying that this is how it's going to go, that's probably not how it's going to go. And that's how we, what we saw on draft night where at the last minute it flipped to the magic, not taking Jabari Smith and going with Paolo Bancaro. We talked about it on here, how, you know, a lot of people were different, you know, had different opinions on him. Overall, for the Magic, how do you like Paolo at number one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a perfectly good decision. And the only reason that there was a big outcry over it was because we expected it to be Jabari throughout the process. Like if, you know, as soon as the combine started, everybody said like, oh, it's going to be Jabari. It's going to be Jabari. And from what has been reported, it sounds like there was a little bit of like an echo chamber created around the combine where everyone was just saying it's going to be Jabari. And no one actually had sources as to why. That's just what they were hearing. So then they were repeating it and it just continued to cycle and cycle. And the magic also, I'm sure, leaked that out and did a good job of putting out this smoke screen, especially, I think, to try to convince Houston to move up to take Paolo at one. Now, that didn't end up working. And I still think that Orlando's front office did a really good job with this. But to me, Paolo, like if you're looking for the guy that you watch for you know 10 minutes and you say that's an NBA player – like Paolo is that guy. Like he's already got an NBA ready body. He comes in as a very skilled player and like just like all of these guys, he still has questions. Like the defense wasn't great in college. You know, the shooting from outside wasn't great, but to me he is just a guy that you look at and say like, that's a real NBA player for us. And for the Magic, like that stability I think is something that would be attractive to them towards the top of the draft. So you know, it, it was a little bit of a surprise, but like, as we talked about, you know, I, I had Paolo lower than most people, but I still said, like, I think it's perfectly reasonable to take him number one. So yeah, no issues with what the magic did here. I want to ask why they did it logically, because you look at Jabari and Chet and a lot of people said that they fit better with the magic team, maybe what they have now already. Um, and so that kind of makes Paolo an interesting choice. So I guess my question is, what at the end of the day, do you think it came down to the magic thought, as we've heard, especially if you listen to like Rosillo, Ben Sim or Bill Simmons, like he's just the best player. And even though those other guys may fit better with them at the end of the day, they wanted to take the guy who could do possibly more at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's definitely what it was, because even, you know, this is why I had Paolo lower than those other guys is because I just think like. I'm not sure any of those three guys are stars, and I think the other two are much more easy to plug and play into basically any system with speaking about Chet and Jabari. Paolo is the guy that's going to be a little more of your 
the engine of your offense. He's going to be more involved. But if you view him as a guy that can handle that load, then he's probably more valuable than those other guys. And, and to me, that's how the Magic viewed him. Like They view him as a guy that can be a real creator for this offense and, and be one of the top two options on a legitimately good team. Now, we'll, we'll see if that... We'll see if that happens, but you know, like we talked about in the pre-draft process, like if you're looking for the guy that's going to be a 25 point per game scorer out of the top three, like he was your guy, and so I, I completely understand taking a swing on a guy that you think can turn into that type of player. Yeah, I think just as just a personal opinion, I understand why Jabari could have gone number one. I understand why Chet could have gone number one, but purely from an offensive standpoint, I think Paolo is and will be at least for the foreseeable future head and shoulders above both of those guys and that's not saying anything against those two because they're both taller and don't play like a a guard position but Paolo is the only one that can handle the ball out of those three really I mean Chet can to some extent pass like he can you know as in that point guard role and if he ever develops a shot he's already so good at getting to the rim that it's almost going to be you know impossible to defend him and we're talking about a guy who's not even going to be your you know your two or one you know he's going to be a three or four being able to do that and so I think that's what they saw and in a in a league where we're moving towards more you know positionless basketball everyone on the floor needs to be able to do you know pretty much everything it's so easy to see Paolo fitting in on any in any lineup in that way and so I think at the end of the day they figured hey if we can take the best player in the draft and we know that we can play him in any spot on the floor why don't why not do it yeah and as much as I like the offensive efficiency that Jabari and Chet provide especially Chet like his numbers in college were outrageous in terms of efficiency I do think Paolo is the guy that I'm most confident that I can plug into a bad offense and he will still go get his 18 points a game just because I do think he has, you know, for lack of like he has that bag that the other two don't. I think Chet it will be much more of a connective piece and he'll still probably be able to score at a pretty high level because he, you know, he'll be able to catch lobs. He's a good shooter, but even as even with how skilled Chet is, most of the creation that you see with him is out in transition. It's not, you know, give him the ball at the top of the key and go run the offense. Like that's not really what he's going to be doing. And same with Jabari. Jabari is not really a creator at all. So especially if you're looking at a guy that can go into a bad team and I think change the way the offense is played, that's definitely a guy that can fit there. Now, when you look at another team like the Thunder or the Rockets that already have their playmakers more set, you know, with Josh Giddey, Shea Gildas-Alexander, Jalen Green in Houston – those skills may not be as necessary. But for Orlando, I do think they're looking for that a little bit more. And so Paolo's offensive skill set should be able to still be somewhat effective, even with less help around him. Yeah, that is what is, what is interesting about this Orlando team is that, you know, you could make an argument that we don't know really any of their good players, like how, how they fit into the league yet. I mean, we, we didn't really see Suggs a lot last year. We don't really know what Franz Wagner, you know, we he, we saw him play really well, but like what type of player is he going to turn out to be? Obviously, Paolo is, hasn't played a game yet. So it's going to be interesting to see like how they look because I still feel like I have no idea like what even kind of product they can put out on the floor. And we're not even, you know, they don't really have any proven guys. And the ones they do are very, have been very injury prone or up and down. So that I think that to them was like we want to take a swing on a guy who has an upside pick because we don't really know what we have anyways. So I understand the pick from that perspective. 
And it's going to be interesting to see how, how quickly Paolo, you know, can become that number one guy. Uh, I want to move on, though, because we have already broken down all these players. So obviously, we're, we're talking more about the team fit here. You know, we like talking about our favorite teams on this podcast because obviously, you know, it's it's mine and Sully's. But I really do think we need to talk about the Thunder as a whole here. And not just because they're your favorite team, but because they kind of permeated the whole draft, right? They had the number two pick, taking Chet. Uh, they had the number 12 pick. And then we'll talk about the Knicks later. And But they traded with the Knicks to get the 11th pick. So we're talking about three picks inside the top 12 here for the Thunder. And it's really interesting because personally, I think, you know, obviously the Thunder roster right now is in no position to like win a championship next year. But the way that they went about it, it's kind of like they're positioning this roster to start trying to contend pretty soon. Is that how you see it? And and what do you think about the the moves or, or the selections, I should say, of Chet uh, and Osmani Jang and, and then Jalen Williams? I do think they're getting more aggressive in the way that they're moving around, like giving up those three first-round picks to get to 11 and take Jang. Like that's obviously a very aggressive move. But the players that they're taking are still operating under the same philosophy of we want these guys that are multi-skilled that might take some time to develop. But if they do end up developing these skills and improving, then they could turn out to be great players. And I think Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara is probably the safest pick out of these three. Even after like we even after we did our episode ranking all these guys like I did end up moving him up a couple spots so he wasn't take it it wasn't as much of a reach as it probably felt like just from where I had him ranked initially but to me that that's the philosophy is like you look at Chet he can shoot he can pass he can dribble a little bit for a big man he's a great rim protector Usman Jang really the only thing he can't do is shoot at this point like he's very he's a very good ball handler and passer for his size he's a pretty solid defender and Jalen Williams pretty much has all the offensive skills that you would want in a forward. And you just have to hope he's his athleticism translates well and he can defend a little bit at the next level. So all of these guys are still kind of fitting under this same like multi-skill basketball philosophy. The, the biggest thing that stood out to me was this whole theory about, you know, the Thunder have all these picks, you know, what are they going to do with all these picks? And I think this draft pretty much confirmed the fact that that is not going to be an issue because when they see a guy that they want, and in this case, it was Usman Jang, or, you know, you could say Jalen Williams because they took them interchangeably at 11 and 12. When they see a guy they want, they have the assets to go up and get him. And there's always going to be teams that are, you know, I, I used the analogy before, like their cupboards are empty. They are needing assets to go make moves. In this case, it was the Knicks. They needed to get some cap space freed up to go sign Jalen Brunson. There's always going to be teams that are needing those assets. And so maybe, you know, maybe you're not able to move into the top four, right? Like that's that's pretty difficult to do. Teams are going to really highly value those picks. It might not be a Jaden Ivey, but still you have the freedom now to move up to 11 to take a guy that you think has a really high ceiling. And so I, I think that's something you'll continue to see over the next few years is they will target specific guys that they really like. And it might feel like a little bit of an overpay, but this is why you accumulate all those assets is now you have the freedom to go get the guys you want. And if Presti's evaluations are as good as they have been previously, then it's worth the it's worth the cost it takes. You know, obviously having three picks in, in the first 12 is a lot of pressure. So as far as the fit of all of them, how do you like the selections for the Thunder? 
I think you know we talked about Chet. Like he was the, he was my favorite player in the draft. So I, I'm really happy with that. I think he fits in very well with the Thunder. It seems like he's also he was very happy to be here. Like there were some reports that he. I don't know if tanked is the right word, but like didn't fully work out for the magic and kind of just indicated that he didn't want to be there. It seemed like, and it's really weird to hear that because guys wanting to come to OKC is just not something that has happened in the past, but it really seems like Chet wants, wanted to be at OKC and still wants to be in OKC, which is really good to hear because, you know, thinking long-term, you hope these guys are willing to stay. And then Jalen Williams and Usman Jang. I think Jang was the one that was like, for some reason, Thunder fans weren't super high on him in the process. And we're, and we're just kind of like, eh, I don't know if they'll take another player like that. But looking back, he is like the most Sam Presti guy ever. You know, he's French. He goes and plays in the NBL in New Zealand. He was he started off really slow. And, you know, he's like 18 years old moving across the world. So we can cut him a little slack there. But then towards the end of the season, he was a great player. He has all the skill set that Presti's looking for other than the good shooting ability. And then Jalen Williams like was very interesting to hear Presty talk about because he he kind of even acknowledged like they he was not really on their radar throughout most of the season. I honestly wonder if like through some of their chat scouting in the WCC they just kind of watched this guy play a little and were like who like who is that guy like we need to go take a look at him. And so I I really like all of these picks just because I I'm so excited to watch them play together as a team because I really think all the guys they have on their roster can play together. All of these guys have the skill set to where I'm not worried about like, oh, is Chet Holmgren going to get enough touches or is, you know, is Jalen Williams going to get enough touches or Usman Jang? Because I really think all of these guys can operate with or without the ball. So it's a different kind of basketball than most teams are going to be playing. Like this is not going to be, you know, James Harden and Chris Paul alternating, taking turns the whole game. Like that's just not how they're going to play. And so you know, a lot of the best teams aren't really playing the way the Thunder are trying to right now, but it'll be really interesting to see how kind of this experiment unfolds. Yeah, I like the I like them being aggressive because it does feel like, you know, what's the point of accumulating all these assets if you're not going to go out and use them and try to get good players? And I think they're finally starting to do that. Now, that may not be parlayed into results right away, but at least they're going to start putting a, a serviceable product out on the floor. And I was listening to something where they were saying, you know, how long is too long to wait for players like Shea Gilders Alexander? I mean, we've seen him. It seems like they shelve him every year at the end of the year. And, you know, you can only do that so many times before it's like, okay, we got to start winning. And so I think in the next couple of years, and obviously you have a better pulse on it than I do, but I think definitely in the next couple of years, if, especially if Chet is as good as he seems to be early on, we're going to see a kind of a push towards relevancy for the Thunder. I think this is potentially the last year that we might see a little bit of manipulation towards the end of the year. I think the 2023 draft is so good with when Ben Yama at the top of the draft. And then people are really high on Scoot Henderson from the G league too, as a guard that can is potentially going to be like a really highly touted prospect that I do think that they would like to be a part of the lottery, at least like, give themselves a chance to maybe get lucky, move up and get another generational guy. But yeah, if this team stays healthy, like I do not think that it is going to be some extreme tanking measure. Like Presti has kind of already said, like we are going to let this team declare itself. And I think what he means by that is if this team comes out and is competitive, like he's not going to prevent them from being competitive. Now, if they come out and they're not very good and two thirds of the way through the season, you know, they're the 12 seed in the Western Conference, then, you know, sure, you might start to give guys some off days. Let's 
let's just reset for one more year, try to come back stronger the next year. But this is not going to be a forced thing. And I think that's also exciting because you have to balance the development of these guys versus trying to still go after more young talent, right? Like at some point you have to develop the guys you have. And I think now they're to the point where they have so many young guys on their roster, like someone's going to have to play. Like this is not going to be the G League squad coming in at the end of the year like it has been the last two years because they have too many guys on their roster to sit unless half the roster gets hurt again. So yeah, I think the philosophy will begin to shift this year. I think they will. their goal is to probably go get one more guy towards the top of the draft, even if it's not in the top three next year. But to me, it seems like after next offseason, like it will be go time. And I think that's where you'll see Presti maybe start to make some moves for some more established veterans, maybe some other young players across the league that he covets that are in bad situations or are in uh, potentially a you know, dispute with their team or whatever. I think that next offseason is probably the one I am most curious to see what what ne- what the next move will be for the Thunder. After the Thunder selected uh, Chet, we saw the Rockets take Jabari, obviously, at three being left. I think, you know, there's not much to say about him because he's going to be the player he is at, at anywhere he went. And, you know, I think it'll just end up being we'll see him on a team later on, whether it be, you know, they're contending or not, and he's going to give you, you know, what he is. So I don't think there's much to break down there with him. But then we had Sacramento at four, and, you know, poor Sacramento always seems to be in the worst position in the draft. And, you can say they did it to themselves, but obviously they have no clue. You know, they can't tell the future who's going to, you know, be good and who's going to be the top prospects. But, you know, the board was definitely set up where a lot of people thought Jaden Ivey was, you know, the next in line to be picked here. Obviously, you had Shaden Sharp higher, but, you know, even with him, you kind of are in the same predicament. Their team really didn't match up to take Jaden Ivey here. And so instead of trading out of it and, and, you know, moving down and letting another team select him, they take Keegan Murray uh at number four and I like Keegan Murray and I don't think this is anything against him but it just feels like Sacramento getting Keegan Murray at four is is a little rich you know not necessarily where you want to take him um and so what do you think obviously I, I don't think there's many people who would say like oh yeah they 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 should have taken him at four and not saying that he won't be a success for them, but you know, do you think it was a mistake to not try to do something else with that pick? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even, I just don't really think Murray would have gone before maybe six anyways, if they hadn't taken him. But to me, the the thing with them is just general process. Like if, if your goal is to make the playoffs next year, out of the guys that were there, Keegan Murray might be the best player left. Like, I I think I still might like Ivy or Matherin. Like, I ended up moving Matherin above Murray after we did our podcast. Like, I probably would have taken Matherin over him as well, and obviously Sharp. But the issue with me is that their mindset is who's going to be the best player for us next year, not who's going to be the best player for us four years down the road when we might actually be competing for something relevant. And that's also indicated by, you know, giving up a first round pick for Kevin Herter. Like I like Kevin Herter. Kevin Herter is a really good player, but what is Kevin Herter doing for Sacramento? Like getting them to the nine seed so they can lose in the play in game. So my general issue with this is not the player Keegan Murray. Like I think Keegan Murray is going to be a good player, but the general philosophy to me just does not indicate that this team is actually trying to win a championship. It just seems like they're trying to fulfill this owner mandate that really doesn't make much sense in the first place. Like, what does being the, the eight seed in the playoffs get you? 
I, I don't know what it does. It, you're out of the lottery, so you have a worse chance of getting a number one pick, and then you go get swept by whoever is, finishes at the top of the Western Conference. Like, I, I don't really get the whole allure of being back in the playoffs other than just being able to say, hey, we made the playoffs. Like, So I, I just think it's more of an issue of team philosophy than the player itself because I do think Keegan Murray's good. Like this, I don't think this is I, – I really don't see any chance he busts. He, I'm not going to overreact to Summer League, but he's already been pretty good there. So there's – there's I don't want to dog on Murray the player, but the Kings, this is a very typical Kings move where – they're looking much more at the present than the future. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, I saw somewhere where I think it was Bill Simmons said, you know, this is a really fun team that their roster is kind of, you know, kind of now a fun roster to look at. But what does that really get you? Because like you said, obviously this isn't a team that's going anywhere. Um, and they don't really seem to be setting themselves up for the future or for now. So, yeah, I agree. It, it's sad and it's unfortunate for the Kings and for Keegan Murray that, you know, he's probably going to be looked at as, as a, you know, a poor pick, even though I really don't think he's a bad player or it's a bad fit for them. But it's like you said, you know, you're, you're measured against what you do on the court and in your record. And I don't know if that's really going to play out. Yeah. And one thing I will add is like, I do kind of like the fit with Sabonis. Like Murray is, has enough different skills offensively, like where he can play in the post, he can play on the perimeter. He's skilled at finishing around the rim where I do like that offensive combination and I think that you do have to have somebody that's pretty versatile to play with Sabonis because he plays in kind of an unorthodox way. So in that aspect, I don't mind it. I think Murray's also pretty good defensively. But as we discussed, like, yeah, the, the general process, I'm just not a huge fan of. We could go pick by pick all day and kind of analyze what we think. And, and I think the better way to do that is just kind of talk about what we want to, winners and losers. But the last thing I want to talk about in this draft, overall, I thought it was a, a pretty boring draft as far as like we didn't see anything like, you know, major happen that was out of the ordinary except some of those top picks. Um, but obviously what the Knicks did kind of confused people. Um, it Can you, you may not be prepared for it, but can you kind of break down or explain what kind of happened in that, you know, 11 to 15 range there with all the movement of picks that happened with the Knicks and what exactly happened there? Yeah, and... I may not get it exactly right, but I think like generally I can give you the out the outline of what happened. So basically, like people really wanted Usman Jang. That was one of the reasons that the Thunder had to give up three firsts. Cleveland was also trying to get very aggressive to move up to number eleven. So the Knicks had like a prized asset there. They knew they were going to be able to get more out of this pick than generally speaking the number eleven pick would be worth. And so first that leads the Thunder to give up three first round picks and not their current first round pick to move up, take Usman Jang. They're all, you know, moderately protected, so nothing super valuable, but for the Knicks, it's helpful. They get some assets back. The Thunder then take Usman Jang at 11, Jalen Williams goes 12, and then here's where it gets really confusing at 13. So effectively what happened here was the Hornets traded out of 13 for a future first-round pick from the Knicks. The Knicks actually just flipped one of the picks they got from Oklahoma City in that deal to move back up to 13, but then immediately flipped that pick for I believe like four, they got like four seconds back in the trade, um, and then a future first, and then the Pistons end up taking Jalen Duran, who was reportedly under consideration for the Pistons if Ivy wasn't there at five. I don't know if they 100% would have taken him, but he, like they were really considering taking Duran at five. Like that's how much they like this guy. So for the Pistons, this is an absolute win because they got Ivy at five, who probably shouldn't have been there, and then they got another guy they valued. Uh, towards that range at 13 
and only gave up a future first round pick. And then I believe they took on Kimba Walker's contract, which they immediately bought out. So this was like for the Pistons, this was a great draft. Like I'm not sure you could have imagined it going any better relative to how they had their board aligned. For the Knicks, I understand why they were so worried about clearing cap space, but like I just don't know. Like, are you sure that you'd rather have Jalen Brunson on that deal than Jalen Dern on a rookie contract? Like, I'm not 100% sure about that. And especially to give up the assets that you did to move out of that pick. Like, I'm not sure I'm the biggest fan of that. Honestly, like, I'm not sure why Charlotte isn't getting more flack right now. I know everyone likes to, like, destroy the Knicks. But Charlotte traded out of a pick. Like, why why do they not need young players? They're going to be one of the worst teams in the NBA next year. And so I like the Mark Williams pick. Like, I'm a big fan of Mark Williams. We know they needed a center. So if they valued Mark Williams more than Duran, which it appears they might have, like, good, you got your center, but, like, why did they not just take A.J. Griffin, you know, or a guy like that? Like, I just think that would have been so much more helpful for them because this is a team in need of young talent, and getting a future first-round pick doesn't necessarily mean that that pick is going to be in the top 15, 16 of the draft. So, a little puzzling. Overall, I still think the Knicks came out okay because they still got those two first-round picks left from the Oklahoma City deal. So, if you look at big picture, I think the Knicks are fine. That one trade, though, getting rid of Kimba's salary just to dump, uh, just to dump Jalen Duran for a future first round pick, like that, doesn't seem like great management of assets to me. Well, and whether or not you know they, in the long run, are going to be well off, it's it's hard for especially a, a franchise and a fan base like the Knicks to stomach not selecting anyone in an NBA draft when you had a pick in the lottery, right? I mean, that's just hard to take because, like you said, when you need young talent, no matter who you are. I mean, if you're not selecting a player and you have, you know, your pick of, you know, the 11 best players in the world, I mean, that's just not a good look. So I I agree. I think, you know, they did okay in their asset recuperation, but especially considering we just talked about the Thunder got three out of the top 12 guys, it's not a good look for them. Um, And like you said, I mean, we're kind of getting in here to what we're about to talk about, but obviously then, you know, the Pistons move in to 13 and get Durant. So, you know, the Knicks kind of, helped some teams in this draft and and they'll have to hope that it pays off on the back end. But with that being said, like I said, there was not too many other questions in the draft other than what's, you know, at that point, it's just, we'll we'll have to see how it plays out. And we kind of talked about this off mic, but you know, the draft is hard to analyze because we don't really know what's going to happen. You know, we can sit here and say that, you know, this team won, we like this player, we like this pick later on, this is a steal, but you know, we don't know if they're going to get injured. We don't know if, you know, what could happen off the court, you know, team fit. There's so many things to consider and but what we're going to try to do that anyways here so i've asked me and Sully, me and him both are going to pick two winners and two losers from the draft he's already kind of mentioned some teams so we might hit on them again but i'll let you go first and you can give me a winner and a loser to start off uh and then i'll i'll go yeah i'll i'll hit my loser first because that's the only one that we've kind of already covered so I had the Hornets as a loser i think i've kind of already explained why i view that like just i don't know why you wouldn't want more young talent so I'll be quick with that one. And yeah, I think to hit on what you just explained too as well, like for example, like I just praised Detroit for getting Duran. I had Duran at 15 on my board. So like there two things can be true at once, right? Like I can think Duran is probably drafted at a pretty fair position there, but Detroit did a good job of managing their assets and getting the guys they wanted. So, and I'll also give a winner here while we, while it's over to me. So my first winner is the Spurs. I just really like the players they got at the position they did. And to me, especially when you pair this with the with the DeJounte Murray trade, I just generally like the direction that this franchise is headed in. I think they finally realized that like being stuck in the middle and being in, stuck in mediocrity is just really not 
ever helpful. And it's very tough to get out of that position and become a great team unless you're in a market like the Lakers or the Knicks or one of those types of teams. And so I really like Sochan, Sohan, I don't know why I said Sochan, Sohan at nine. I think he's very versatile. When Throughout the process, it was always talked about, oh, the Spurs are going to want a big, the Spurs are going to want a big. So a lot of people mock Jalen Duren there. Jeremy Sohan is a Spurs big. He's versatile. He's a great defender. He can pass the ball. Like That is the type of guy that the Spurs want, not not a just pure center that they want to take at the top of the draft. So I really like that pick, and I think it matches what we see from the Spurs' philosophy in general. And then later in the draft, they just took two swings. You know, Malachi Brandon was a guy I had, like, I think 12th on my boards. Like, I thought he fell a little bit. I understand, like, he really can't defend. So it didn't surprise me to see him fall a little bit. But then they go get another guy, Blake Wesley, another wing. Like, these are two guys that just have great scoring upside for later in the first round. You know, both of them probably won't pan out. You know, one of these guys probably won't be that good. But if one of them hits, then that's a pretty big win towards the end of the first round. And so – I think especially with them, you know, they are looking like they're going to be one of the teams trying to tank for Winbenyama next year. Playing Branham and Wesley next year is probably going to get you closer to Victor Winbenyama because these guys are not ready to come in and be great NBA players immediately. So I overall, I like this draft. I think the swings they took were good. I also just really like Sohan at the top of the draft as well. And obviously we know, like, same thing with the Thunder. You know, we can talk as much as we want about Jalen Williams and Usman Jang. Chet Holmgren, Jeremy Sohan, those are the guys that are going to make or break your draft. Like the picks in the top 10 are the ones you've got to nail. And so that I overall, that's that's why I'm a big fan of the Spurs draft. Yeah, that was, you took my winner. That was one of my winners for sure. And I think it, it's more so big picture because, yeah, they got three really good players or, well, at least three players that I can say, wow, those were all good picks that even if they don't pan out, you understand what they were doing there. But like you said, the DeJounte Murray trade, um, I like Murray and I think he was on a really team friendly deal, but like you said, if in the big picture they're going for, you know, you know, the Frenchman next year, then it makes sense. So I think overall they're headed towards a direction where, you know, this draft was a success. I'll go ahead and get my winner out of the way. We've kind of already talked about it, but not really from the perspective that I want to hit on. And that is, that is the Pistons. Um, Sacramento kind of made them a winner, I guess you could say, but I'm looking at this from a Jade Nivey perspective where, we, you talked about him, you know, when, when we were going through the prospects, but not only is he a great player and he can play, you know, in any kind of offensive system, he can do anything you want him to do if he pans out correctly. But now he goes to a place to where it's the perfect fit to me offensively because Kate Cunningham's going to be bringing the ball up the floor and Ivy is going to be able to do what he does best early on. He's not going to have to force, force it or anything. And so I really like the fit there. Uh, and I think his strengths are going to be highlighted as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, that's all you can ask for when you pick a guy like that in the top five. Yeah, with Ivy, I think it's so hard because it's like, I did the Pistons win or did the Kings lose? Like, I, it's, I don't even know, like, should I give the Pistons credit for just taking the guy that fell to them? But I agree, like, even if you don't really give them credit for taking Ivy at five, which I think, like, you still have to be super excited about as a Pistons fan – the, the assets they gave up to get Duran, like that, you've got to be super excited about that as a Pistons fan. And obviously, you know, if the Kings are going to mess up, like take advantage of that mistake, right? Like you've got, you've now got a very exciting backcourt with two guys that I think just complement each other so perfectly with the more methodical, like thinking style that Cade Cunningham plays, where it's much more controlled, you know, using his mind. And then Ivy, who's just one of the most explosive players in the league day one. 
So I, I think he, I would think Ivy will benefit a lot from having Cade to help him with some of the on-ball load early on and allow Ivy to kind of adjust into the, his NBA role. So yeah, great, great draft for the Pistons. Like you've got to be super excited if you're a Pistons fan. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, like it's you know it's not just because you know the Kings messed up doesn't mean they're not a winner. You know what I'm saying? Like I mean, yeah, they'll take Ivy all day. So yeah, I don't necessarily know if it's something they did that's great, but you know it, at the they're still a winner because he fell to them. My loser is not what's my first loser that I want to talk about is not necessarily because of what they did on draft night, but it's just because of what they could could not do and because of the situation of their team, and that's the Lakers. And they're just losers in general this offseason. I guess this is what I'm kind of considering because they're a team that is distressed of young talent. I mean, LeBron and AD are not getting any younger. And instead of, you know, providing young talent for them, they have no picks. And so their only pick um, was Max Christie. Uh, And what's funny about him is, you know, they said they needed, you know, three-point shooting. And the funny thing is, is he shot the ball terribly in college. And he is a shooter, and his form's good. It just didn't go in. But, you know, I I find it hard to believe that all of a sudden he's going to take this huge jump, although I do think he has the potential to. So, you know, obviously I'm not going to get too harsh on a pick that, that was in the second round, but... I think they're just losers in general because they're one of the only teams really that to me has no chance of winning this next year, but yet they didn't even get a really a top pick in this draft. They have no path forward, it seems like. And so that's why I think they were they were a loser is because they're not even players in this draft. Yeah, that especially I think if you're looking at a big picture, obviously that hurts. Like there like you said, there isn't anything on draft night that I can point to and be like, oh, they did a terrible job with that, but overall like they just didn't really get any value out of this year's draft and the funny thing is you know we're talking about like they're gonna be bad next year it's like as currently constructed I agree but like if Kyrie Irving somehow gets to LA like all of a sudden this discussion I think changes a lot because if Kyrie does end up going there and I know we'll hit on Brooklyn a little more so we could save like the Brooklyn talk for the end like if he ends up going there that means Westbrook is leaving and like that I think is as much of a benefit as adding Kyrie is and so that is going to be really interesting to follow that saga because there aren't very many teams in the market for Kyrie. So like, I do think the Lakers have a real shot at getting him if they're willing to part with some of their future first round picks. So yeah, I agree. Like as currently constructed though, like this team is drawing dead. They did, they did not add enough talent in the off season to make up for that. And I don't even hate some of the signings they had, you know, like Lonnie Walker, Damian Jones, some of those guys, like they're, they're fine players for what they are, but yeah, the, the second round pick with Max Christie was interesting because I really didn't expect him to go like the more potential route. We've seen them hit on some of these guys in the past that are, you know, three, four year players like an Austin Reeves or a Kyle Kuzma. Like those have generally been the kind of guys they've gone after. And that's actually been one thing the Lakers have been pretty good at is drafting guys in the second round. I mean, even, you know, Taylor Horton Tucker, I think they got him at like the 45th pick. If there's anything you can credit their front office with doing, it's finding these guys in the later rounds. So Maybe they do that again with Max Christie, but it doesn't seem to match the mold of the guy they've targeted in the past, which I which I do find pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just think we'll talk about it later, but I am not convinced if Kyrie, I mean, Kyrie AD LeBron on paper is like, yeah, yeah, that's an all-star, but when have they been um, reliable? <laughs> so I don't really know even if you have those three that you can yeah, definitely you just, say. You have to believe LeBron is just like the Kyrie whisper. And like, that's the only time he's really been focused in his career. And yeah. so if you think that he can get him back in that mindset, then I, then I'm like, yeah, I'm all in on this, but we have no idea if that's actually going to happen. Yeah. We'll save that discussion for later. Um, 
All right, yeah, you can finish this out with your winners and losers, and then I'll, I'll bounce back. Okay, yeah, so these two shouldn't be as be as long. So the first one I have, and I, I wanted to go a little outside the box here, was the Atlanta Hawks. I just think they also did a pretty good job of taking a swing on a guy a little bit later in the first round in A.J. Griffin. You know, we talked about him, how depending on how you feel about his medicals, he could go six, he could fall, and he fell in the draft. And I think that's pretty much why. Like teams did not, it seems like teams did not believe that he could get back to his former athletic peak. And maybe he can't, but this is the type of guy that already, as he plays, is going to fit in well around Trey Young and DeJounte Murray because he's just going to shoot the lights out and provide great spacing for them. He does have some other skills that can play. Who knows how much he'll be on the ball now with Young and Murray, but if he does continue to develop, then all of a sudden I think you view this Hawks team a little differently because as currently constructed, you know, this team doesn't scare me a ton. Like they'll make the playoffs because they have talent, but I'm not looking at this team as a finals contender. And so I I just like that they're willing to take swings on a guy later in the later in the first round rather than taking a guy that is, you know, safe but may not end up making too big of a difference in in his career for that team. And I don't know. I think it's kind of funny. Like you take AJ Griffin, you take another shooting wing out of Duke with questions about his like athleticism. It's like, it's the Cam Reddish story, but you did it a little bit later. And so maybe it works out this time, but we'll see. I, I think Griffin at this point is a risk worth taking just because if he does stay healthy, if he does regain that athleticism in a couple of years, we're going to be talking about him as a guy that, definitely should have gone top 10 in this draft yeah i think that's a good point and um you know there's no really hurt for aj griffin to be selected by the hawks just because of the team they already have in place you know they don't need like a star ball handler they don't need like a big man and so he's going to a system to where he's going to be able to like we talked about with ivy really showcase his strengths and you know young is draws so much attention he can kind of do what he did at Duke and just, you know, has to stand in the corner and say, all right, I'll, I'll be ready to shoot a three, which he does better than anyone in this draft, which I think is an undervalued <laughs> three-point shooting is both talked about too much, but still undervalued at the same time. It's like, if you can catch and shoot a three in the NBA, that's a really valuable skill. And if he can do that, then he's a valuable player. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like if Griffin can't move, he's basically just Danilo Gallinari. Like he's just replacing that for the Hawks. So like, I think he plugs in pretty easily as like a base level role. And then he also will have the opportunity to continue to expand that if things do go well. So I'll go ahead and also hit on my loser. Uh, this is a team that has made a pretty big move recently as well. I'm not really including that in this. We'll talk about the Gobert trade separately. But the, I think the Timberwolves had – an interesting night, but I, I, I came away a little flat and wishing that the players they selected had gone a little bit differently. Now, these guys, I mean, one of these guys has already been moved in Walker Kessler at this point, but they did get great value out of the Memphis trade. They, they traded down, they got a whole extra first round pick, and then were selected at 22 and 29 instead of 19. They then moved up from 29 to 26. So they ended up selecting at 22 and 26 in this year's draft. They selected Walker Kessler, which to me just felt like a reach. Now, it's kind of funny that they selected Walker Kessler because if you're coming up with the peak archetype for Walker Kessler, to me that is Rudy Gobert. And so it very clearly seems like getting rim protection next to Carl Anthony Towns was a priority for this team. And 
now with Kessler, like I was not a big of a fan of that pick, to be honest. The other thing that I didn't love was with Wendell Moore giving up two seconds to move up three selections in the draft to get Wendell Moore. I'm just not sure that's great value because Moore to me doesn't seem like a guy that you're moving back in to take a big swing on, right? Like this is not a guy that you're like, oh, you know, we're willing to give up these extra assets because we think he's a great player. You know, three picks later, Ty Ty Washington went at 29. Like, is there that, I'm not sure, I think Washington's probably a better player than Wendell Moore, right? And if there's a gap, it's pretty small. And so I'm not sure they got great value out of the Wendell Moore trade. I'm just not a big fan of Kessler, but as we'll talk about with the Gobert trade now, you know, Kessler has already been on the move. So who knows how the Jazz valued him? Like, they could have valued him as a throw-in. They could have valued him as a as a great first-round pick. But generally, with the guys they selected at the spots they did, I just, I'm not sure they got the best value out of those selections. Yeah, good point. We'll talk about the Go Bear trade here in a minute. Uh, so I'll wrap up really quickly so we can move on to free agency. Spent spent a lot of time on the draft here. Uh, my other winner, I would say, and this is kind of it's kind of hard. Like I said, because there was there was a lot of teams who just kind of stuck to the status quo. But I did like the fit at number eight, and I I really like what this team is doing overall in general, and that's the Pelicans. I think Dyson Daniels. You know, we don't we have a lot of people probably haven't seen him play. You know, I I myself haven't necessarily you know watched him a ton, but from what I know about him, from what I've watched, you know, I think he's a really good just NBA player, good playmaker. And I think, you know, going to the Pelicans, like we said, with a lot of these teams, you're looking for players who can slot in next to the guys you already have. And he's already got several players on that roster who can take pressure off of him and kind of allow him to do what he just does best. And that's play defense and playmake. And with McCollum and Williamson and Ingram there, he's not going to be asked to do too much as far as scoring. So I think he's going to be able to slot in right away. And I think just the Pelicans in general have started to be really smart as a front office. They got Liddell in the second round. And, you know, we talked about him. I think he, as long as he's not asked to do too much, you know, he could be a productive bench player. So I think overall the Pelicans are in a good direction. And I liked what they did with Daniels and and Liddell in this draft. Yeah, I like, like we talked about before the draft, you know, I wasn't as high on Daniels as some other people. I think I had him at 13, but this is like the perfect situation for him because all these other guys around him have so much gravity. Like, even if it's Zion barreling into the basket, if it's Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum behind the three-point line, his life is going to be made so much easier because that teams are not going to be able to make his life difficult when he's trying to playmate for other guys just because of his lack of shooting because they're not going to be able to help and force him into difficult shots. Like, all these other guys have so much gravity – I also really like the fit with Herb Jones defensively because those guys are going to be one of the best defensive pairings in the NBA on the perimeter if Dyson turns into the defender we expect him to be. So yeah, overall, I think he's in a great spot for him. And the role that he will be in early on, I think will suit his development very well because really why I had him lower is just I had concerns about if he comes in. Like, I'm not sure he's ready to handle a big offensive load yet, but they're not about to ask him to do that, especially if Zion comes back and is healthy. So I agree. I think this is a really good fit for them, and Dyson will contribute on both ends of the floor. Right. All right, my last loser is – and this this team really isn't a loser, I would say, because I it's hard to call any team that, you know, obviously if they just made poor moves. But I really don't understand, I guess, what the team is trying to do, and that's the, the Trailblazers at seven taking Shaden Sharp. I agree with you. You know, he's got a lot of upside. I don't love him as much as you do. But what I don't understand is what the plan for the Blazers is because – they kind of seem to be trying to contend with Damian Lillard and some of the moves they have made. And so if you draft Sharp here at seven, 
A, if you're wanting him to play right away, that's a lot of pressure on him and something I'm not sure he's quite ready for. And so that could cause him to be viewed as a as a bust when he probably won't be because if you gave him time, he could turn into a good player. So that's, I guess, why I phrase them as a loser is because I'm not, it's more the direction of the team rather than the pick because I'm not sure why you take Sharp at seven, especially like we just said with some, with Dyson Daniels and some of those other players sitting right there. So a little confused why that, what they want out of Sharp and it's nothing against, you know, Shane Sharp. Yeah, this might be the first one we disagree on. And it's not just because I'm high on Sharp. Like I, I just like that the Trailblazers are not making it clear that they're fully beholden to everything Damian Lillard wants because they're, and you know, Dame, you know, he's, he's, he always likes to talk about like how loyal he is, how he's not going to take the easy road. I still think at some point it might be time for him to leave. And if I'm Portland, I don't want to be left with a guy that was quote unquote NBA ready, but maybe not a guy that's going to develop into the best player. And so, you know, if you got a commitment from Dame, it's like, yes, I absolutely want to be here for the next four years. Like I'm trying to win now. It might be different, but at the same time, like I just think you're far enough away if you're Portland at this point that why not take a swing? Like to me, this New Orleans, like I could see if things go right for New Orleans, like, yeah, they can make the Western Conference finals. If Zion comes back and plays as good as he did last year, if Ingram continues to be a great player, if McCollum fits in well, if Dyson plays well. Like, I could see them in the Western Conference Finals. I just don't really think Portland can. And so, even if it takes a couple years, maybe at that point, Lillard is still pretty good. Sharp develops. You get some more young talent in there. Simons continues to be a great player. Like, to me, I agree. Sharp next year, definitely, like, probably not going to be as helpful as a Daniels or a Sohan, uh, one of those type of guys. But I'm not, I don't really look at the Trailblazers as a team that should be prioritizing next season which does make things very interesting because you do have Damian Lillard, right? Like that's a little different than some of these other teams that are being patient because they don't have one of the best 10 or 15 players in the NBA on their hands. So yeah, it's a very difficult situation. It's complex. Like I would understand why you'd want to target a guy that's NBA ready, but I don't really believe enough in this roster to have that be my philosophy going into the draft. And I I don't think it's necessarily we disagree because I agree with you on the sharp piece. It's, it's, I guess more, it all hinges on what the trailblazers want to do. If the trailblazers are trying to push him into winning now, then I don't like the pick, but I agree with you. If you think Damian Lillard is going to leave, then it's a great pick. And it's, you know, it's like, Oh, we're building for the future, but why not go ahead and do that? I guess is what I'm saying. Like why, why try to do this in between? Like why has Dame not been traded? And and honestly, like that probably is the bigger question anyways. It's like, what, what is the point of this other than showing loyalty, which does have some value, right? Like fans care about that. Like fans don't want you to trade the best player on your team. So I understand that, but yeah, from just a team building perspective, like Dame being there to me feels more like the, the outside part of their decision-making right now than it does the main factor because they still extended Anthony Simons. Like, do I think that backcourt can defend anybody good enough to win a championship? Like, absolutely not. And, you know, same with Sharp. That's that's a talented young player, but we don't know what he's going to end up becoming. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Like, the, the outlook of the franchise is definitely questionable at this point. Yeah. All right, uh, let's skip. T- uh, we're done with the draft. Let's skip to what we saw after, and that's obviously free agency and, and – uh, some of the trades that we've seen 
you know, obviously this is what shapes the NBA really now. I mean, free agency in the offseason has become, you know, almost as big as what we actually see played out on the court. Um, and in today's NBA more than ever, there's more movement, it seems like, because even these players under contract can just be like, yeah, I want out of here. And, you know, we're starting to see that almost, you know, quicker and quicker. You already mentioned it already, so I don't want to, you know, move it back and have a, a big discussion. So let's start with probably the biggest trade that has happened so far. You know, it, it was no secret um, that the Jazz were shopping Rudy Gobert. And I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I'm just thinking of Brian Winhorst and his, you know, masterclass of a performance. Why did that he do that? <laughs> masterclass of a performance he put on first take i just love the fact that that day it was like i don't even know who those people were that was on like first the take. team yeah and so when I, I heard them break this down it was like when horse was like i know i'm not going to be interrupted by Stephen a so let me just take like three minutes of airtime to absolutely just oh, yeah. leave everyone confused about what what i know yeah that um, was like the biggest heat check of all time like he was just like i've got a chance here and i'm just going for it and like i think he probably knew and just couldn't like Say right. like I I don't know maybe he didn't know Gobert was going to get traded but like I, he probably had intel that was like this is on the table and he was just like I'm gonna put this group in a whirlwind which the the first take group also did not come off well at all because they had like no idea what he was talking about and like I didn't feel like it was very complicated when he was asking what's going on in Utah like what else could it have been you know like yeah. it's him or Mitchell on the move so yeah I don't know that was like that that was just such a hilarious encountered like definitely if like Stephen a is there with like jj reddick like that's not happening right well Stephen a you know <laughs> that's too long of a break in between him talking so, yeah that's yeah, like 15 he's, seconds and he's back in yeah so i just thought it was funny when i think it was the the woman on there nothing against her but he said something like what do you think they're doing and she was like trading for Kyrie, and he was like no <laughs> like, yeah yeah he's like absolutely he's not. like what like, are you thinking all right, anyways, let's get to what he was talking about or what we think he was, you know, alluding to. And that was the Jazz eventually shipping Rudy Gobert to to the Timberwolves for pretty much everything they owned except their star players. I mean, I think let's just let's just cut to it. Like nobody thinks that I've heard, that I've heard analyze it, that I, you know, value their opinion, thinks this was a good trade for the Timberwolves. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless it pans out and they win a championship, you know, pretty quickly. But even from a basketball standpoint, from what they gave up asset-wise, maybe you differ, maybe you're one of the few, but like, is this not one of the you know more head-scratching trades we've seen in a while? I don't, I, it was probably too much, but like, I honestly don't hate it. So like, I guess I should explain why that is. Like, I just think with Towns, like you have to have a good rim protector next to him if you want your defense to be good enough to ever win at a high level. And so, yes, like this offensive fit is very questionable. They gave up obviously a ton of assets to get Gobert. So there there's, you know, there's no way to not critique this trade, at least some, because the picks are just so overwhelming at this point. But I, I think the Timberwolves are going to be a top four seed in the Western conference next year. And to me, the bigger questions are about what happens when the playoffs come around and teams can begin to target the specific weaknesses you have in your defense when Dallas is playing five out, when the Warriors are playing the, the pool party lineup. Those are where my concerns are a little bit bigger. And I think we'll need to, I'll need to see like, can this team handle small ball? Can they actually outwork them? Because one of the problems with Gobert is that when they go small, Gobert is not skilled enough in the paint to punish you for that. He's not able 
to go down on the block and, you know, dribble twice and shoot a hook shot. He is under 50% when he dribbles one time when he's attempting a shot. And he only shoots from the paint. So, like, he is a catch-and-finish guy. However, if there's any big in the NBA I think he can play with, it might be Carl Anthony Towns because he spends more time out on the perimeter than probably any good big man in the NBA. And so I don't think this fit is as clunky as some people think. Towns will definitely have to improve his perimeter defense for this to work in terms of you know them making the Western Conference Finals or making the NBA Finals. But especially in the regular season, like I think this team is going to be very good, especially if Anthony Edwards takes a leap because – you know, we've seen like the Jazz have had issues defensively in the playoffs. But, like the Jazz in the regular season are always great defensively because Gobert is just so dominant in the regular season. So I understand why they did it. This clearly was new owner syndrome trying to make a splash as well. Like this was not they. I I would guess that the reason they threw in enough of these assets was probably pushed from above the GM level as well. But. I don't know. Obviously, yes, it's an overpay. Like, they gave up too much. I completely concede that, but I don't think this is going to... I don't think we're going to look back on this and say, like, wow, that was one of the worst trades in the history of the NBA. We might just look back in three or four years when maybe they made the Western Conference Finals one time when Ant develops into a star and say, like, yeah, that was probably a little too much. Like, that's kind of how I view this deal. To me, though, you answered the question to why this... I'm not saying that Gobert is a bad player and like, oh, you traded for a you know garbage player. That's that's not my argument. But to me, I think you answered why it's a bad trade and why they shouldn't have made it is because like, you know, obviously if the Timberwolves want to make money and revenue, and we have to remember the NBA is a business, so yeah, like you want players to, you know, be successful in the regular season. You want fans to enjoy watching your team. But at the end of the day, the goal is to win. And this is a move if you're throwing this many assets at at a team to get a player. This is should be a move to win a championship. And and I heard Rosillo go on this rant. It's like you kind of answered my question there in, in your explanation is like what do we seriously think this team can win a championship? And I don't see them even close like I don't see a path for them in the playoffs to win. And it's not necessarily like oh Towns and Gobert and and Edwards aren't good enough to be on a championship team, but like, we just watched Gobert get run off the floor by the Mavericks, you know, and, and Luka was hurt. I mean, and, you know, Towns and, and Edwards, you know, they should have won that Grizzly series if they had any brain cells, and they they couldn't. And, and, you know, Edwards is still, we just watched the finals where Jason Tatum at 24 years old, he needed to be about four years older. I'm convinced of that. Edwards is 21. So, like, this isn't happening you know, tomorrow and Gobert is, I think 34 in the next year or something like that. So the timeline of it all, Gobert is not getting better defensively in the playoffs. Like that you can look at the stats, you can look at the on off. It's getting worse as he gets older. And so, yes, I agree with you. You know, this, this team could win 72 games in the regular season. And maybe if they do that, obviously like, okay, this team's better than we thought. But when it comes to a playoff series, the goal is to win a championship. And there, I don't see them making it, past the first or second round I just don't and that's where I guess I'm like yeah it's a it's a good trade for a good player but if you're making this type of trade you you would think the team is in a position to go for broke and the west is only going to get better next year and so in the playoffs I wouldn't have them in the regular season maybe top four but in the playoffs I don't see that 
And, you know, maybe we differ there. But I'm going to have to see them actually be able to win in the playoffs, and I, I don't know if we are. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I have them over, like, the Clippers or, you know, the the Nuggets or the Warriors or, or any of those top teams in the West. But, like, I, I do think they could make the finals, like, at some point. And that involves Ant developing into the best player on that team. But I, I think that's probably where we disagree. It's like I do think it's possible with this roster they have that it could develop into a finals contender. And like, is that uncertain enough to where it might have been too much to give up for a guy like this? Like, yes, probably. But I do think, and this is probably where this is where the Gobert argument like splits one way or another. It's like you, you're either for or against him. Is do you believe in the playoffs? And I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer to this. Like. Do you believe in the playoffs the defense has gotten worse because Gobert can't fit in the playoffs or because the Jazz have no defenders around him? The answer is probably a little bit of both. I tend to come down a little bit more on the side of the Jazz just having no help on the perimeter defense because the whole thing with Gobert is his rim protection, his ability to man the paint. When the Jazz have no perimeter defenders – that just becomes an impossible job for him because it's pretty much just a free path to the rim every single play. And with the way that works, like Utah's help defense was not good either. So shooters are just left wide open constantly. And yes, like, is it difficult for Gobert to play five out? Like when he has to play from the corner? Like, yes, like he struggles to to help with that more. But he is not a horrible on-ball perimeter defender like other big guys are. Like, I, I think he survives out there better than most people think. But to me, that's the question is, was the was the playoff defense issue in Utah a Gobert thing or a Jazz thing as a whole? And, you know, we probably don't get the answer to that question until we see what happens in Minnesota. But I still have faith that he can be a very good playoff defender. And, and most people probably don't. So, like, I, I, I understand that re- position, but... I just think he's been put in very difficult situations and we'll see maybe, maybe a new situation for him will help. I think the biggest question is like how towns defense because him guarding athletic fours is going to be a difficult task. And so that, that will be, I think the thing I'm most curious to follow because towns isn't the most physical guy. Like that's not really like how he likes to play. So this might be easier on him physically. He might actually prefer doing this kind of like Anthony Davis prefers to, to play and guard fours, but we'll see if he's able to adapt and be quick enough to, to make that change. I definitely see your point. And, you know, I, I don't have a problem with the Timberwolves, like trying to make a move to win a championship. That's not my problem here. It's just the guy they chose is they decided to put two seven footers together around a 21 year old, hoping he's going to end up being the best player. And if the timeline was next year, then yeah. But I, I just don't see – the problem is like the timeline of Towns and Gobert is probably next year. The timeline of Anthony Edwards is probably five years from now, which puts Gobert at like 40. So I just – it's not necessarily a problem with the, the roster. It's just the timing of it with who they decided to get. And it's okay that we disagree and you know maybe it works out and I'm eating my words, but I'm just going to ha- – it's going to have to be one of those things where – it's not even anything against Gobert. It's just the fit of the team. I don't I don't know if that's enough for him. I do think this is an interesting test case and like a little bit different of a philosophy where like usually what we've seen recently, and this is true with like OKC, it's let's get a ton of young guys together and then let them grow together. 
this to me feels a little more like the NFL theory where it's like we have a superstar quarterback on a super cheap contract. So let's go spend a bunch of money on other guys right now while we can. Like while Edwards is on this rookie deal, because when Gobert's contract expires and his contract right now is massive, Edwards will only be in the second year of his rookie max extension. So from that perspective, I do think it's interesting to say like, okay, we have Edwards cheap right now. Let's go use this cap space while we think we can have it. Because by the time Gobert's contract expires, like Towns is going to be on a big deal. Edwards will probably be on a big deal if he continues to develop. So from that part, it's interesting. But the issue now is like, what are, where are the assets coming from when you go make the next move, right? Because you just cashed in so many chips right now. So that obviously that's the big question, but I do think it's interesting, at least this idea of like, we've got this super young talented player that is way, is way ahead of schedule. Let's see if we can put some talent around him while he's not eating up a ton of the cap. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and to be honest with you, I, I think they were a year late on this. If this if they would have traded for Gobert last year, obviously there was no way to know Edwards' ascension, but this was the year for the West that it was a little weaker. And I genuinely think if you put Gobert on this Timberwolves team this year, obviously they, they gave up all the assets that were on that playoff team. But like, you know, the Grizzlies I think they could have beaten the Grizzlies and then, you know, there wasn't another really astounding team in the West unless you want to argue the Warriors. So, you know, I, I do think there's a path for them, but We'll have to see how Gobert and Towns play together, and I think that's going to make or break the trade, like you said. All right, the other trade that really happened, so we, we, we spent a lot of time here already. <laughs> this always seems to happen. We spent a lot more time than I would like. But DeJounte Murray to the Hawks, we talked about it you know, kind of quickly in the, the winners and losers wrap-up. Um, you know, Murray, you know, talk about a guy on a good deal. It was kind of a win-lose scenario for, or for him and the Spurs because I, if you've listened to it, it's like, you know, Murray's camp wasn't going to do an extension because, you know, he's going to, he's a more valuable player than he's what he's playing on. And so the Spurs decided to get rid of him. So he goes to the Hawks, you know, their obviously hope is that he'll take pressure off Trey young. You know, I think the thing with the Hawks is like, they're, they're always now going to be trying to reach that Eastern conference finals expectations. And I really don't know if they're that team. And so it'll be interesting to see if Murray suddenly vaults them back into that conversation, which I'm of the belief. No, but you know, overall, do you like this trade for for the Hawks and, and pairing Murray next to uh, you know, you know, obviously Trey Young is an excellent player. Yeah, to me, it all comes down to, and I, you know, I'm probably repeating myself a little because I talked about this on Silly Sports Up too, but like, it all comes down to Trey Young with me. Like, Dejounte is a versatile enough player. That, like, I really don't have concerns about him fitting in anywhere. Like, I think he, you know, he almost averaged triple double last year, so he he can do a lot of different things for you. Uh, he's a pretty skilled offensive player in all facets of his game. He's also got the size, I think, to defend bigger guards, which is very important next to Trey Young. Like the guard next to Trey Young, I think, for a team to become a Finals contender has to be good defensively. Otherwise, you're just you're just drawing dead at both guard positions. So generally, I, I like the fit, but with Trey, the question is like, is Trey going to stay in the Luka Doncic role, or is Trey going to have like? half Luka Doncic role and then half Steph Curry running around off ball screens while DeJounte Murray handles some of the offensive load. And if it's the latter, then I, I think this is going to work out pretty well. I still don't know if I would say the Hawks are going to you know go make the Eastern Conference Finals anytime soon, but they'll at least be a competitive team. And if, if Trey or DeJounte makes a big leap, maybe you're looking at a surprise team. 
But to me, it all comes down to Trey because he is the one that – and in some ways, they've had to play like that. So it's not really a critique on him as much as it is just saying that things are now going to have to change because you cashed in a lot of chips here. Like You, you don't really have many other moves to make at this point. Your roster is pretty set now. So this fit needs to work. I think it can work. It, I think it just comes down to the mentality that these guys are going to have going into this adjustment. Yeah, I think they're going to have to force Trey to, you know, take a little bit of off ball because, I mean, it's not like Murray is like, oh, this amazing catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. That's probably the worst thing he does. I mean, he does everything else so good. So you would almost think, you know, that's the plan is that, hey, look, Trey, we need you to get off ball a little more, not only for, you know, the sake of Murray, but just for, for your sake. Like, you know, if you watch that Heat series, you know, the Heat knew that Young wasn't going to get the ball out of his hands. And so they just tortured him. And so, you know, that he's going to have to be able to, you know, take a little bit of the load off himself to even give them a chance. I like the trade, but, I mean, like you said, it's all about what your standards are. And, you know, it's funny because I, I, I talked about my last podcast about how only one team can win the championship, right? We act like all these teams can win every year, but they can't. Only one team can win the championship. And so, you know, if you know, some of these teams are just going to have to settle for being relevant and for the Hawks, I think they, they pulled off a move that is going to make them the most successful with the pieces they have. And even though that's not enough to win a championship, you know, at least they're, they're trying. And at least I can give them credit for that. Yeah, and they're at the point now where, like, you've made your bed. You have you have to lie in it. Like, when they signed guys like Bogdanovich and Gallinari, they moved the timeline up. So, you you know, you, you, you are not in a point now where you can be like, oh, yeah, let's take a little reset. Like, no, like, you've already you've already committed to trying to contend in this time. So – you know, at this point, you do what you have to do and you hope it works out because, you know, a few years ago, like then I would have said, yeah, like let's hit the brakes a little bit. Let's let's let Trey and this Hawks team be bad for a couple more years. Let's get a couple better draft picks and then we'll go make those kind of signings in a couple of years. But they chose not to do that. And so now at this point, like, yeah, you, you can't fully you can't reset this team like you're, you're too far in at this point. You can't you can't do that to a roster that's still pretty talented. All right, let's get into some free agency discussion and uh, because that's kind of what we've seen take place besides those two blockbuster trades is, you know, obviously some some pretty high-level free agents being signed. Um, you know, it's not like we've had a huge blockbuster summer as, as far as like a, a Kevin Durant joining a new team or, you know, a star player of that caliber picking a new team in free agency. Instead, we, we've kind of swung the other way, and this is what I want to talk about. And me and you have once again talked about this off mic is instead we're seeing a lot of these players that have been with their teams for a while sign these max extensions um, and continue to get the max from their team. And I've seen a lot of you know, arguments, and you can go down the list here, of the Bradley Beals of the world and the Zach Levines and you know, you know, throw in whoever, Zion Williamson, whoever you want to put in there. And it's like, do we really want to pay this player the max? I mean, do, we, do they really deserve it? Um and I think me and you need to have a discussion on this for people who care and not many people do listen to this, but, (laughs) um, you know, why do these teams pay these players the max? Because obviously it's, you know, it it can be made an argument that none of them deserve it, but there's a reason to it. It's because they, they have to, I mean, you can't, you have to pay somebody in this league and if you're not going to pay them, somebody else will. And, you, you know, you have to fill out a roster. You have to spend money somewhere. And so instead of losing an asset for nothing, you pay the player who at least makes you a relevant team. And this is a business at the end of the day. And I think 
you know, you're kind of more on this side and can explain it better than I can. But I think more of the problem that is with the NBA right now is that we're not able to pay players what their actual value is, right? We're not allowed to give players different values for what they're actually worth. And instead, you have all these players kind of grouped in at the same amount of money, but there's levels to it. You know, Bradley Bill's $45 million is not the same as Steph Curry's $45 million. And that's a problem right now in the NBA. But, you know, I think there is a discussion there to be had that these teams are paying these players the max because they don't have anywhere else to turn. Who else are you going to pay the max than that guy? It's either lose him or pay him. And I think that's why you're starting to see a lot of these, you know, players resign because obviously they want the money. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that has to be stated is like, and to be clear to people who may not be as familiar with the NBA cap rules, you can go over the salary cap up to a certain point until there's a hard cap to re-sign your own players. You can only do that with your own players, though. So what happens then is, you know, the Suns, for example, or the Wizards, like they, yes, like they're using that cap space on a Devin Booker or a Bradley Beal. But if they don't use that cap space, they don't get to go use it on another free agent. Like they, they don't then get to say like, oh, let's go sign Zach Levine. It just goes away. So the the opportunity cost of not using it is so much higher than it would be for something else because it's it's that or it's nothing. And so the salary is inherently going to be an overpay compared to market value for some of these guys. But on the flip side of that, there's also guys – that are very underpaid, which which sounds weird, but like Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, these guys are very underpaid. And you know how I know that? It's because they're making the same amount of money as Bradley Beal. Like no one considers those two players to be even, but because in the NBA there is a max salary, which you know you can't sign for above that certain threshold, these superstars are even more valuable, and it also prevents these guys from getting market value and it allows these teams to be stacked to a point where it's very difficult to compete with them because you think about in you know the NFL if you choose to spend 50 million dollars on Patrick Mahomes you've got to make cuts other places you know this that's why Tyree Kill gets traded Tyree Kill goes to the Dolphins because the Chiefs chose like we want to pay Mahomes and that's probably the right decision in the NBA you say we want LeBron James oh we also want Anthony Davis because we can and, and oh yeah we also want Russell Westbrook because we can go fit a third max contract in. If max contracts did not exist, you know, maybe LeBron James, maybe Kevin Durant are making $70 million. Maybe they're like, what, what's the cap, right? Like if, if the cap's 123 million, how much of your cap are you willing to pay for a guy like Kevin Durant? Is it 60% of your cap? Is it 70% of your cap? Like where's the cough? Where does it become worth it? And so I also think it becomes way more interesting from a team perspective because then they actually have to decide like, is this do we want to actually outbid this team or is, there's a point where it's not worth it, right? Like if you sign LeBron for a hundred million dollars, you have no money for, to fill out the rest of your roster. So it, it would make team building so much more interesting. It would also allow teams that are in worse markets to actually have a shot at signing these guys, because why on earth would LeBron James go to Charlotte instead of LA when he's making the same amount of money in both places? Like at that point, there is no decision. You obviously just go to the Lakers. So I think it's a change that needs to happen and would make free agency and the overall attitude towards the salary cap much more interesting. Because right now, it's basically just you go after the best players, you hope you get them, and after that, you go spend your money how you need to. 
And another reason to sign these players to the max is because, as we've seen with these players, they'll sign the deal and then request a trade. And so you then are able to flip those contracts for a lot of assets. I mean, look what Rudy Gobert just got back in return. And so because of the way the max is set up, you have to replace that money with a, with a lot of assets. And so I, it makes sense for a team like, oh, we'll, we'll take a risk on signing this player. And if he wants out, we're probably going to be able to recuperate a lot of assets for him. Now that may set you back winning, but you know, I think that's the thought here is, you know, we have to spend the money somewhere. Why not on our own player? And you did a really good, you did a really good job of explaining the whole opportunity cost there with, you know, signing your own players. I mean, in your opinion, is there any player who you think that should not have gotten the max from their own team? Because, I mean, every one of these guys, I think you can make, you know, it was the right choice. I think the one is Beal because, to me, that one felt like a commitment more than it did like, oh, we think you're that good. I think the Wizards yeah. were more excited that Bradley Beal actually wanted to stay in Washington and then felt like, oh, yeah, well, like, if he actually wants to be here, let's pay him. Like, I'm not sure he's actually worked that, especially for a team that's not really any better with him than they would be without him. But that's the one, right? Like all of the other ones, like the Jokic, the the Booker, the Carl Anthony Towns, like all of those to me, like they almost don't even like I, I don't even get excited about them. I just read them and I'm like, oh yeah, like obviously that was gonna happen. Right. Like it doesn't even register because it's just like there is no other option for these players because they're making more money. There is no other option for these teams because there, you know, there is no alternative choice there. So yeah, it's. I understand partially why they do that with the rookies. They want them to sign with their own teams. Obviously, you don't want guys leaving after three years, so there needs to be an incentive for these guys to stick around with their team for their first rookie extension, which I think is I think is perfectly fine. But those the the issue more comes with these unrestricted free agents, where the max contract starts to limit the the options of where these players go. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Let's talk about. You know, we, we've hit on the max there, and I, I think, you know, there's, there weren't really a lot of surprises, you know, of anybody re-signing for the max. Like you said, more so the Wizards being willing to give it to Beal. But, you know, the one free agent, this is how you know this this wasn't a, a great free agent class, especially switching teams, is it was the, the Jalen Brun- Brunson sweepstakes for the New York Knicks. And I loved uh, a segment that uh, Simmons and Rosilla did talking about, is this the lowest that we can use the term sweepstakes for? Is that Jalen Brunson... There's a sweepstakes for him because, I mean, I, I did a segment on it for, for my podcast, but, you know, Brunson's a nice player and there's nothing against him, but when have we ever talked about him like he's <laughs> like a, a free agent that you got to go get? I mean, like nobody has ever referred to him as that. In fact, he was just now a starter for the Mavericks. So, you know, I like him and, you know, obviously if the Knicks are looking for stability at the point guard position, that's his middle name is like, he's just a stable player. You know what you're going to get out of him. He works hard. He went to Villanova, played under Jay Wright. But in, in actuality, I mean, I don't know that there were actually that many teams that were bidding on Jalen Brunson, except the Mavericks and the Knicks. But it, we already talked about it a little bit with the draft, but why were the Knicks trying so hard to get, you know, Brunson to come to hit there? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I felt was I think Jalen Brunson is very good. I think Jalen Brunson is probably worth close to what he got. Like it maybe it's a slight overpay, but you know, that's part of the winner's curse, right? Like if you're gonna be the guy that signs the player, it's probably gonna be a little bit of an overpay because you're gonna be the team with the highest offer. So I really don't think the offer was that bad. I just don't know why the Knicks care so much right. about it. Like other than the fact that you hired his dad and as an assistant coach, like what is Brunson actually doing for you? I, I think Brunson is a very good player. I think he will probably average like over 20 points a game next year, maybe seven assists. I think his skill set 
translates pretty well to New York because he's so good on floaters and spacing is not necessarily going to be something that is abundant in New York, especially with Julius Randle, you know, guys like Mitchell Robinson, like this is not going to be a team with a lot of spacing. So I think he's able to kind of navigate amongst the trees very well. But to me, the only reason you make this signing is if you're looking ahead to next offseason and you think there's somebody you can go get. So if next offseason the Knicks, you know, package some of these assets together, go get a superstar, and now Brunson is maybe your second or your third option behind RJ Barrett, then completely understand it. I'm in, like this team will be pretty good. But if you're like if this if the goal was like, oh yeah, let's pair Jalen Brunson with Julius Randle, then it's like, yeah, I, I don't I don't really get where this get, moves the needle to. Maybe their goal is just to be like, we have every left-hander that's semi-good, and then that to just yeah. freak everybody. Like they're like, well, they're left-handed. We can't. <laughs> I don't really know, but they do. They do have seemed to. It's like the left-hand, the left-footed punters. You know, they got Randall, Brunson, and Barrett now all in their starting lineup. Um, we didn't really see any, you know, huge other free agent signings. So, I mean, I like, like you said, I understand. I do have to give credit to the Knicks. Like, you know, they could have swung for Kyrie, and Brunson is the exact opposite of Kyrie. Like you know what you're going to get out of him every night. So I at least got to, you know, they went with the stability rather than, you know, the, if there's instability of Kyrie, that's his middle name. Um, and so I like the fact that, you know, they, they knew they were getting a player who they can rely on, but yeah, it doesn't really make sense unless they got, you know, something cooking for next year. Uh, obviously there's a lot of other little random moves that we could talk about. Um, but I think, you know, those are more relevant when we actually see them bear fruit in the regular season slash playoffs. So, you know, we don't want to go through all of them, but I do want to talk about my team and that's the Celtics. Cause I do feel like there are two moves that they made are probably the most right on the nose for what we just saw in the finals. You know, I, I think I, t- I texted you off, uh, after the finals, I was like, I really wish we trade for Malcolm Brogdon. And then that's what they went and did. They traded, you know, I think Tyson and Neesmith in a, in a pick for, uh, Malcolm Brogdon and I saw a, a meme or a picture of like a what the Celtics traded for Malcolm Brogdon it was like a paperclip and a penny or whatever so I really think the Celtics did about as good as they could with what they gave away for him now it's going to be staying healthy uh, and then also they got you know Gallo on uh with their tax exemption and and I think you know he wants to play for a contender so that kind of worked out but you know based on what we just saw from the the Warriors series you know do you think these two guys now give Boston maybe what they were missing in this last finals yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like exactly what we said they needed the entire time, which is like a steadying point guard. Like that, I think that's probably like exactly how I phrased it. it. Was like they just need somebody that's like an adult that can take care of the ball. Like that's exactly what Brogdon is. I mean, the, the, he's the exact prototype of the player they needed. Now, the question with him is, can he actually stay on the court? And the reason why I am a believer in this deal, even though Brogdon has not been able to play very much in the past couple of years, is because. I only really care if he's healthy come playoff time. Like, I'm not concerned at all about the Celtics' regular season. Without him last year, they were by far the best team in the regular season in terms of net rating, overall efficiency on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. So, yes, like, is the health a concern? Absolutely. That's why he didn't go for very much. Like, if he was healthy, then I'm sure the 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 Pacers are probably asking for Marcus Smart or, you know, Al Horford or somebody back in this deal with some value. But... If he's healthy come playoff time, like I think this now makes the Celtics real contenders. Like I think if they have Brogdon last year, they win the finals. And I'm not like I'm not even sure it's that 
that complicated at that point because it, the, that is the one thing that was holding them back all of last year. So I'm not going to say that's going to happen now this year because obviously we've talked about how many teams are geared up now and ready to go, whether that's Milwaukee now with Middleton going to be healthy, whether that's the Clippers, the Nuggets. Um, there will be other teams that improve as well. But I love this addition for the Celtics, especially for how little they gave up. I mean, effectively, Ty, you know, Tice is no value. Neesmith wasn't playing and then a first-round pick. Like that, That's 100% worth it. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to have to pay more, but like, if you pay attention, like, what is a couple million dollars in the luxury tax or a penalty compared to winning a championship? And I think yeah, when you're a championship contender, the luxury tax cannot be a factor. Right, exactly. And the Warriors have shown that with what they have been willing to spend. And the Celtics, like we were saying, like, they just needed warm bodies because the problem was is that Tatum and Brown had no time to to rest and so they were just zombies out there in the finals and so you know now you turn to Brogdon and Gallinari and even though I would have liked a little more athletic wing than Gallo I mean at least now you can say hey we we can give you know somebody a rest like they can throw a lineup out there that doesn't include Tatum and Brown that's at least serviceable and it's we're not saying you know please save us you know Peyton Pritchard so I think you know hopefully this will be a lot more versatility for the Celtics than what we saw this past season. Yeah, and they can also rest on the court more. Like, they're not going to be the ones dribbling the ball up the Mm -hmm. court and taking on that load. Like, we saw that's something, like, a lot of times LeBron would do in Cleveland was, like, he wouldn't – like, he might play 42 minutes, but for three or four of those minutes, it's more like, hey, Kyrie, like, this is your turn. I'm still going to be here if it's needed, but I'm going to catch a breather here. And I think Tatum and Brown should be able to do that more with with Brogdon on the court as well. So, like, even the minutes they play I don't think should be as, as strenuous as they previously were. Obviously, it's hard to come through all the moves that were made, but we have seen another one. Another one that I thought was interesting was, you know, Gary Payton leaving the Warriors, and I think that's a, a loss for them considering what he meant to them for their team. But a lot of those little moves there. So any other, any other moves that you thought were interesting or maybe play a factor that we need to be considering going into next season? Yeah, I'll hit, I'll hit on two really quickly, and then we'll move on. So I think these are two role players that will be pretty helpful. First, that's Kyle Anderson of the Timberwolves. I just think like his connective skills around like around D'Lo, around Cat, around Ant, and now Gobert as well will be very helpful and help this team just like function a little bit more smoothly. We saw how erratic they were in the Memphis series, and I just think Anderson is like the opposite of that. He just he's gonna slow you down. He's gonna make you more controlled. So overall, I just like the type of player that Anderson brings for them. The other one I think is interesting is Bruce Brown for uh, going to the Nuggets, just because Bruce Brown, like the big concern with him leaving Brooklyn is like, what does his general role look like when he can't play that like reverse center role where he's like the screener roller on offense, but then guarding guards defensively. But I think that role kind of still exists in Denver because of the way Jokic plays offensively. Like Brown still is going to be able to operate in the paint, set screens. You know, Jokic can be the the ball handler in a pick and roll. So I think that works pretty well with Brown. They're, they they can use his defense as well. So out of all the teams in the NBA, other than the Nets, I think Brown has one of the best, or I think he has one of the best fits there compared to, to other teams. That's a really good point. And, you know, he really, he was one of the only good players on the Nets in that Celtic series. So we know he can play in the playoffs. And I, and I think the Nuggets, you know, we'll obviously talk more about this if we're still doing this next season, but, um, I think the Nuggets are in go mode, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how quickly their pieces coalesce together to actually make a run. All right, let's get to the big, the big dog of of the discussion, and 
to me, it's not as big of a deal that we're as we're making it, and it's, it is as big a deal. So it's it's kind of hard to know until all the pieces shake out. But I'm of course talking about the Brooklyn Nets crisis and what's happened with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and just the organization in general. And it's of notice before we get into this that they're signing players left and right. So it leads me to believe that somebody's leaving. Uh, I know they signed T.J. Warren today. Uh, they signed somebody else too that's escaping me right now. Um, but or uh, Sumner from the Pacers. So I think we're probably going to see something happen here. But let's talk about, you know, how we got here, right? I mean, obviously the Nets, a couple years ago, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving decide they want to team up. They get to Brooklyn. They pretty much change the – they created it in their own image. They get Steve Nash as their head coach. They shape the roster around him. They see their buddy James Harden. They say, let's go get him. We have a big three. And then, of course, the world kind of falls apart, literally and figuratively, for the Nets with COVID and Kyrie Irving not being able to play. James Harden wants out. They get Ben Simmons. Then they get swept. And, then you know, it's just been a mess. And, and nothing has seemed to really go right for them. So I guess I kind of answered my question of how we have gotten here. But why do you think it's escalated to this point so quickly? You know, who's to blame here? And obviously everyone wants to throw it on Kyrie. But is it that simple? Or is it just more so this was – a marriage that was never going to work because of the way that they were put together. I think there's a really good chance that if Kyrie gets vaccinated, that the Nets are like coming off a championship right now. Like I, I, I do like, it's not that simple. There are other factors like Harden's, you know, attitude towards the Nets. Um, the, there are definitely other factors, you know, the lack of depth that they had, but if, if that big three was still together and functioning well, like, I don't think there's any concerns going into this offseason, even if they didn't end up, you know, making the finals. Like maybe the Celtics still beat them, but I don't think any of us are sitting there like, what are, you know, what are the Nets going to do? It's just like, you know, maybe next year they'll run it back and win. So like, yeah, I, I really do think it's, it comes down to that just because I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, Harden leaving was kind of the first domino to fall in this case. And I don't think we're at this point if Harden doesn't get traded. And I'm not sure that happens if Kyrie gets vaccinated. So to me that that it just started the domino effect of now we're we're stuck where we're at because that happened first. Isn't it just so ironic that a world pandemic, you know, probably stopped the Brooklyn Nets. No no opponent, no team, but Kyrie Irving being himself pretty much in refusing to get vaccinated and obviously there seemed to be some stuff behind the scenes that we didn't really know about with James Harden that led to him wanting to leave. But what's funny to me is that it it seems to be that it's like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are at war with their own organization. And if I'm the Nets, I I just feel so helpless because it's like we we traded for we you know we got you here. You know, we we pretty much got you whatever you wanted and now we're paying because you won't do what you know, you won't play in Irving's case. So you know, it's just a lose-lose situation here because, you know, Durant apparently is mad at how they handled Kyrie. But if I'm the Nets, it's like, well, it's not our fault Kyrie won't play. I mean, so it won't get vaccinated. So it just seems like there's no solution here. And I think it's so funny that Irving opted in because, you know, it's like now he's kind of at the mercy of the Nets. And I would not be surprised. I've heard this, you know, it's like, you know, Josiah is a billionaire and he's kind of, you know, done whatever they wanted, but he kind of has the power here. And so it's going to be really interesting to see if it's just like a broken team where he's like, no, you're playing, or we do find homes for these players. And we'll, we'll kind of brainstorm here in a minute. But I mean, as far as like, what, let's say the season starts tomorrow, do you think that Kyrie and Kevin Durant are, are, are both one or, or neither are on the Nets? 
if the season starts tomorrow, they're both on the Nets. But I think there's a chance well, yeah, to I mean, like, training camp, and then we see like what what's going on here. Because right now, like I have not seen an offer that's even close to what I think was value for Durant. I mean, I haven't even seen an offer that matches what the what the Jazz got for Gobert. So like we're a long way away, I think, from a deal being made. And you know. These things can accelerate very quickly. Like if a team decides that they want to make their godfather offer, like this could start to accelerate. But like, yeah, I, I think especially with Durant, like there's four years left on his contract. Like we saw Maury do this already with, with Ben Simmons. He was like, why am I going to make a deal when I don't feel like I'm getting value? Like, I'm just going to wait. I'll wait six months. I don't care. Like I'm going to get an offer I want eventually. And, and so I think we could see something very similar, especially because that worked. Like the, the Sixers got who they wanted. Now, did that end up working out? Like, Maybe not. We'll we'll see on that. But the process wise, they did it worked out exactly how they wanted it to. So yeah, like I, I think there's a chance that this drags on for a while, just because the offer that it's going to take to get Durant. I mean, think about what Gobert just got. Like there's there's only so many teams that even have more assets than that to give up. So yeah, th- this could drag out. And I don't know. I mean, if I'm the Nets, like I don't think that's the worst outcome because. The worst outcome to me is selling and getting back a bad package. Durant has four years left on his deal. Like you're going to get a good deal at some point. Yeah, I mean, the the best thing that Rudy Gobert has done to this point is is get is be valuable because he got traded for so much that like, I mean, Kevin Durant is infinitely more valuable yeah. than Rudy Gobert. It's going to take like seven first round picks, like eight or nine. Right. I mean, Gobert got five. Like we're we're at that point now. And I think that's just more desperation than like, oh, he was actually worth that. They just wanted Gobert. But yeah, I mean, like it's it's people are going to compare that to that, even though they shouldn't. And I think the more the problem here is that that Kevin Durant is being traded, period. That's the problem in this league right now, is you have players of his stature who are being traded. Like, you know, who would have thought that any team in their right mind would would probably be wanting to look for a deal for Kevin Durant. And I, but I don't blame the Nets because of the situation they're in. And it's Dude, just the insane. next CBA is going to be rough. Like I, I would be if there is a really good chance that we get a lockout with how much like power the players have at this point. Like right. te- teams are going to try to get some of this back because yeah, I mean a guy with four years left on his deal it still feels like he has leverage, which is ridiculous. Like, it, but that's, I mean, that's just the market we're in. Like, that's just what's been created. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's going to be restrictions put on this in the future. Yeah. You know, we forget a lot of times that owners are the most important people in this business in any sport and they don't like losing money and they don't like being told they're owners for a reason. They don't like being told how to run their teams. And I think we're, like you said, we're going to see a rude awakening next CBA we just talked about, you know, to, to kind of wrap up our NBA discussion here, I think we've had a lot of really good talk on, on this episode about how, you know, Durant, he can't really command a package worth his value right now. Yeah. And so instead of, you know, I think you'd, you know, to give your podcast a shout out, Sully has now started his own podcast. So please go listen to that. If you follow him on social media, I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, you kind of did a thing, I think, you know, discussing Kyrie Irving and, and Kevin Durant trades. And so to close the the, the episode here, or at least our NBA discussion, I want to talk about some fun KD trades because I don't think necessarily I'm looking for a package here that makes sense because you're not really going to find it. But in a in a vacuum here to kind of close, I want to do something fun. And we're each going to pick three teams that we would like to see Kevin Durant on. And like you said, the funny thing is, is 
down the road, we don't know what who, what team's going to end up emerging because somebody. I mean, we know everybody wants Kevin Durant, so it, I think you know there are several interesting fits here for him and just things that would be fun. So obviously, there are certain teams that would be hilarious that if he went to, we may talk about that. We may not. Uh, I, I will talk about it if we don't draft them as those teams. But this is a little Kevin Durant fun team draft trade. So I'll let you go first in this in this draft. You know, give me a team that you think would be funny or or uh, just a, a good fit for Kevin Durant if he was traded to? Yeah, so I, I at least tried to pick teams that like could potentially maybe make an offer. Like I definitely was willing to stretch it a little, but the first, my first pick is going to be the Memphis Grizzlies. I think you know one one team we're inevitably going inevitably going to talk about at some point here is the Warriors. This is kind of taking the flip side on that where. I think it would be so fun to see him compete against the Warriors rather than going back and playing for the Warriors. And so I think Memphis is the perfect place for that because they already hate each other. Like Golden State and Memphis cannot stand each other already because Memphis is this young, like arrogant team and that just drives Golden State nuts. And having KD paired with Ja, with with these other young players, and then having that be a new Western Conference rivalry, I think would be super fun. Durant already was like pretty happy in Oklahoma City. Like I don't I don't think Oklahoma City the town was why Durant chose to leave. I think it was more just the basketball situation there. So I think he would be fine in Memphis. Like I I don't think he's one of these guys that demands to be in Los Angeles or New York even though that is appealing to him obviously going to Brooklyn. So I think the Grizzlies would be my number 1 pick just because of how fun that that potential rivalry would be in the Western Conference. That would be so great, especially with everything we've already seen, even after the Warriors have won on Twitter. And then you just throw in Kevin Durant to that. Um, you know, you would have, you know, social media be for days, uh, even more so than what we see on the court. Um, I actually do want to kind of, I know I said no logistically, you know, we don't, we're not really thinking, but I do, I think this could be a possibility if the Grizzlies wanted it to be. But my concern with this, and, and I'm not asking you to, you know, be like, oh, serious about it, but. If it is a possibility, you know, like, does Jaron Jackson have to be included in this trade? Because I think so. Because, you, yeah, you can say, like, all right, well, we, we got Desmond Bain, but is Desmond Bain and Kevin Durant an equal swap? Obviously not. So, no, yeah. And it's going to have to be Jaron Jackson and Desmond Bain. And, and even though I would think about that if I was the Grizzlies, it you don't want to give him up. You know what I mean? Yeah, Memphis and the Pelicans, I think, are the two teams that are at a point in their timeline where it makes sense to trade for Durant that also have the picks to potentially just, like, throw in every first-round pick they have for the next, like, eight years to actually potentially get a deal done, even if they don't include, like, the superstar young player. So, like, yeah, I think you could potentially get away with giving up, like, Jaron Jackson and just, like, eight firsts, and that might be enough, but... The other problem now is Jaron Jackson Jr. just got hurt. Like he's out for the next six to eight months, I think. So that's definitely going to make this a little bit more confusing because how do the Nets value a player that they're uncertain about his long-term health? Maybe, you know, I'm not super concerned about it long-term, but it's definitely going to be a factor in if that negotiation does take place. All right, my first pick in the KD fun trade draft is – the jer- nobody can see the jersey you're wearing right now, but the Oklahoma City Thunder and Kevin Durant returns home where he has been called a snake and a cupcake. I don't think this trade's happening, and I want to make that clear, but I, I think it would be pretty funny. And I wish this was like two years later, at least Oklahoma City could somehow time travel like two years later while the league stays in the same bubble when they're actually um, 
good because asset wise the thunder kind of have it right i mean they have more picks than anybody you could say hey we have chet holmgren and and obviously i don't think they'd want to trade him but you could say you know we have you know lou dort shay gilders josh giddy you know we have all these picks and you know let's get a deal done for kevin durant and bring him home and he wants to he wanted to win here so let's let's try it obviously like not looking at to hardcore analyze this because i don't think it's going to happen but asset wise if there ever was a team that could trade for Kevin Durant, it is your Thunder, and wouldn't that be a story if he came home and 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 won a championship there? Yeah, if OKC wanted to do it, they could. Like if they put in Giddy Dort in like six first, I think it gets it done, and they could do that. Like they have the assets, but one, I think Durant still hates Oklahoma City, and I just don't think he wants to go back there. I think he just doesn't like how he was treated, and I mean, understandably so. But also, I think you know the Thunder, like you mentioned. If this was two years later, from the Thunder perspective, I think it would be a real possibility. But I think there's kind of two sides of this that both aren't really ready to engage on that front, even if asset-wise it does make sense. To me, the Thunder's number one argument is like, hey, Russell isn't here anymore. You don't have to play oh, yeah. with Russell. No, this team would be awesome. Like, they, I mean, that team would be crazy. The other issue is to like, you know, he is 34, like – that roster in three years is like that's a title contender like that's that's right. one of the best teams in the nba but like how you know how is uzman jang gonna look early on like how i mean how is chet home gonna look early on like that those are the questions you'd have to ask and so yeah it's probably probably unrealistic yeah logistically here like i said not thinking too hard i it would just be fun if durant was back in a thunder uniform yeah all right so my second pick is going to be the Los Angeles Lakers. And the reason that I think like I would put this one in is purely just because of the woes bomb that would occur if Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook were shipped out to Brooklyn for Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, because that's what the trade would have to be. And that part of it makes it even more interesting because it's just this massive swap, you know, Anthony Davis, the clutch client being shipped off to Brooklyn like that, that, that would just make things so interesting. And obviously teaming up LeBron and KD who, you know, people might view as the two best players of the last decade, that would just be crazy entertaining. I think it would be awesome to see those guys play together as well. So that that would be my next pick just because first of all the transaction would be nuts and also just watching those guys play basketball together would be awesome. That would be that would be really cool and and a really big storyline and obviously um you know shipping AD and Russell Westbrook out to Brooklyn would be, you know, with their Obviously, I don't know if Nets would even want that big three, but has there ever been a more fragile big three than <laughs> Ben Simmons, Russell Westbrook, and Anthony Davis? I mean, you might get you know twenty percent of your games with them on the floor, um, but yeah, I mean, if the Lakers could do that trade, you know, you you could argue they have three of the best ten players in the league when right, and like you said, I'd be on board with them, you know, being a contender then. Uh, but yeah, that'd be a really fun trade. All right, my next one. This one I think is is an actual possibility. I don't think if they make this trade, they're winning a championship. And I think if you're getting Kevin Durant, that's what you want to do. And that's Toronto. Um, I really like what they could throw at Brooklyn. Obviously, they're in their division. So I don't necessarily think, you know, Brooklyn would want to trade with them. But, you know, if they say, hey, you know, take Scotty Barnes and, 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 you know, being picks or even Siakam in that trade, you know, that's a possibility. I would love to keep Scotty Barnes out of this trade, but I just don't see them saying, yeah, we'll take in, you know, being Siakam and picks for Kevin Durant. So Barnes is probably going to have to be included. Uh, you know, who else, who else knows? But I think, you know, the reason I bring this up as a really fun trade is 
we've only really ever seen the rental model work one time, and it was with Kawhi and the Raptors. And so if they could hit that again with Kevin Durant and the Raptors and get them another championship, then that would be pretty crazy for them to do it twice. But like I said, I don't I don't see that happening a second time. But I think that's one we sh- we could actually watch out for. Yeah, and the other issue is like when when they traded for Kawhi, it was like, okay, we gave up Jakob Pertl and DeMar DeRozan. This is going to be like you're probably giving up Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam because the Nets are going to demand Barnes. And then you have to throw in a big salary to make the contracts match. So like Siakam would probably have to be thrown in out of necessity for the deal to even work, even if you don't want to include him in the trade. It probably just has to happen. So I don't think Toronto would do that. And honestly, I'm not sure I would either because I'm not sure a roster of Durant and Ananobi and Fred Van Vliet is good enough to make the finals and win the finals anyway. So like I I think I'd probably rather just have the the young asset that I can um, continue to let grow. And like I I think Scotty Barnes – my like right now, I think if there was one guy other maybe other than Cade, like I, I think I'd rather have Barnes than anybody else at this point in their careers. So like I, I would value him very highly. But yeah, Toronto would be very interesting because you know you kind of have that same story of the Kawhi going back and um, trying to redo that all over again. But all right, my last pick would be the another LA team, kind of basic, but the LA Clippers because this deal would involve Paul George going back to Brooklyn. And then, you know, whatever other assets you might want to throw on, whether it's Norman Powell and a couple couple first-round picks, the Clippers going all in on this duo of Kawhi and Kevin Durant, you get the Crosstown LA rivalry here with Durant and LeBron, which would be very entertaining because we haven't really seen that back and forth a ton since, you know, Cavs-Warriors a few years ago. And I just think that that Clippers team would be – you know, maybe even better than how we feel about them currently, which is a team that can win the title. So that that roster would be very interesting. The whole Durant Kawhi dynamic would just be like very funny, I think, because they're both kind of weird guys, but in different ways. Like Durant's the always online, you know, social media guy, and then Kawhi is just like the I don't no one knows anything about him person. So I think that'd be my third one, just because again, like I I, I focused on Western Conference teams because I think the the rivalry there is much more interesting and like with the Warriors, with, with LeBron, all of those storylines coming together and the Clippers are another team that would, that would be a very interesting place for Durant to end up. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, obviously like you said in LA, you know, having, you know, the two arguably biggest names in the sport besides maybe Steph Curry would be really interesting. All right, I think, you know, there's one we have to talk about, so I'm going to group these two together because I don't even know if this would be fun, but I, I want to talk about it because you kind of posed it to me. Um, what about what about the Celtics? You know, what about uh, Jalen Brown? Um, I don't know, maybe probably Marcus Smart. And then, you know, I don't really know how many picks we have at this point, but whatever we got, we just throw it at the Nets and, and bring Kevin Durant to, you know, Boston with Jason Tatum and what we have. I think that would be super interesting. And then I'll group that with the, the two finals teams here. Obviously, the one everyone's talked about, we have a friend and who's a Warriors fan, was sending us a pack. I have, I, if the Warriors are really interested in Kevin Durant, I, I'm shocked at that. I, I can't believe that. But if there was a team that could actually put a package together for Kevin Durant with just players, it's the Warriors because they are so deep that they can throw Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins even. Uh, you know, James Wiseman, Moses Moody, Moses Moody, (laughs) Kendrick Perkins. Um, But I really think, you know, if it wasn't the name Golden State Warriors over the franchise, 
they would be the number one team to to sign him. And unfortunately, because of their already you know kind of good slash bad history with him, I don't think they're going to do it. But from a from a you know roster standpoint, they're the most in position. Yeah, this is like a really interesting test case of like how you feel versus what would be the best because I think every single warrior has been like, yeah, we enjoyed this last championship, you know, so much more than any of the other ones. And then this would be like going exactly back to how it was before where you're, you're probably going to win another championship, right? Maybe two or three, but is it as enjoyable? Like, does it feel as organic with your roster? So that would be a very interesting dilemma to, to hear and experience. But yeah, I mean, I, I think their package is a little overstated just because Moody and Kaminga are still pretty big unknowns at this point. And so obviously throwing in pool changes things a little, but that's still a major question. And so maybe they're willing to throw in all their picks for that and then you're fine. You know, it works out, but I'm not sure it's as realistic in terms of the package. And I think that makes it even more complicated, right? Because, you know, I don't know if Kevin Durant wants to go back there. You know, it seems like it, things ended pretty badly between he and Draymond. And it seems like now they, they get along okay. But I don't know. Steph seems like one of the best team players ever in terms of being selfless. But I'm not sure he even wants to deal with that again. So, yeah, that, that one would be very interesting because I, I would just – I'm almost more interested to hear all of the different sides, like thoughts on that now as to whether they would be all in on it than I would be to watch that team play again because – I, I enjoy the league so much more now with not knowing who's going to win the championship every year. And I think that's exactly what we're back to if Durant goes to the Warriors again. Right. And obviously all these trades are hypothetical. And, you know, any trade with him at this point is like kind of, you know, it's like we're saying in a, in a real world, you don't trade Kevin Durant. So anything that actually would happen is kind of crazy. Yeah. And to put a bow on this conversation, I think honestly, he shouldn't be traded. Like there is no team that's worth giving up everything you have to trade for Kevin Durant. And in a perfect world, he should just stay like assets like this should not be able to move around. And I honestly, I think Kyrie, you know, he just for the way everything has worked out, I hope he goes. It's just, I'm tired of talking about him on the nets, but it, it honestly, I don't really see, like you said, where Kevin Durant c- can go because I don't know if there's a team who can put together a package for him. And then on the flip side, the ones that can, do they even want him? And so I don't necessarily know if we're going to see a Kevin Durant trade. And that's going to be really interesting because, like you said, he's got four years left. So either the Nets lock him in a room and figure something out, or we're going to see a trade maybe where it's it's just weird. It's not as much as we're either or it's way over the top. So I this situation is so interesting because you just don't see this with the best players in the sport. Yeah, and I would say be on the lookout for three-team deals, too. Like, that that could be the way this gets done because, as we've talked about, like, it's really hard to put together an offer by yourself to make this happen. And the last thing I'll note with Durant is he loves playing basketball. Like, I, I have a really hard time thinking that if the Nets come back to him and play hardball, that he is going to just say, like, yeah, I'll sit out for four years. Like, I, I don't care. I'll sit out. Like, he's not that kind of guy. He loves playing basketball. And if I'm the Nets, I think I'm willing to call his bluff on that, even if he sits for six months. I, I don't think he can sit out for four years. I, I just don't think he can personally do that. And so I think the Nets do have leverage, but the question is, do you want to play that uncomfortable game with one of the best players in the NBA? Yeah, that's a good point. 
All right, I think that's going to do it today. Hit a lot of stuff, and I do think we might hit some summer league talk. I know Soli's going to watch the Thunder game, and so you know we might talk about some of these young teams and what we see going into the season. But as far as I know, most of our NBA stuff is is done, and unfortunately, slash fortunately, it's kind of become an all year round thing. It's one of the longer sports that we have to talk about, and so um, you know, we'll very shortly the season it seems like we'll be starting back up, and I think we've done a pretty good job of being able to. Talk about a lot of different things. Thank you, Soli, for coming on. Uh, like I said, Soli's doing his own things now, you know, getting out a lot of stuff uh, that, that we're not able to talk about. And so you, you want to say something? Yeah, here, you mentioned Summer League. Here's your Summer League update. Thunder are up 20 after the first quarter. Chet Holmgren has 13 points. 2026 NBA champs, Oklahoma City Thunder. There's your Summer League update, and we'll see you all in the, after the losses. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right, yeah, as Soli said, Thunder up. A big in the summer league and, and i would encourage everyone to go watch you know them because they're going to be pretty exciting thanks everyone uh for joining us for this nba discussion i might have a little wrap up here closing but uh we'll close up our nba discussion and thank you Soy, for coming on all right guys if you made it this far into the episode to the end i want to thank you very much spent a lot of time there talking about the nba but i think it was all really good discussion a lot of stuff to talk about over the last couple of weeks uh and like i said hopefully That'll be kind of the end of the NBA discussion until uh, next season. We might have some summer league stuff, but mostly finally over there. On last week's episode, I had two really special guests on to discuss uh, Stranger Things, what we saw in Volume 1 and Volume 2. I really enjoyed doing that. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And so uh, even though we've already run for a long time today, I want to do a really quick wrap-up. Not too long. Thank you for bearing with us to, to this point. But Volume 2 is now out. I've watched it, really enjoyed it. And so I want to kind of go over three quick things because I do feel like it would be an injustice to preview that uh, finale and then not ever talk about it. And so we're not going to go very long here, but there's three quick things that and thoughts that I have. I'm not going to break down the episode. You can go listen to a lot smarter people than me do that. But I have three quick thoughts about it and what I think we're going to see for the last season of Stranger Things. Number one, as this uh, you know finale was was being built and marketed, it was like the, the most you know carnage we've ever seen on the show, and all these people were wondering you know who's going to die. We talked about that on on the episode with Olivia and Emma, um, and you know I will say once again that if you don't if you haven't watched the show yet and you don't want spoilers, then then please don't listen to this. I'm not going to give too much away, but we are going to talk about some of the some of the biggest spoilers. But obviously, really, only one person dies uh, in this episode, and that was Eddie, which which I call, by the way, give myself a little credit there. I just don't think there was any way for him to really make it out and, and have a normal life. And so, uh, you know, had a beautiful character arc, but is eventually killed in that episode. And I've seen a lot of people saying that, you know, they're disappointed that more people weren't killed off and there needed to be more killed off. And there's not stakes if the deaths don't mean anything or, or whatever that may be. And, and I guess you could also kind of say we don't really know what's happening with Max right now. Uh, I'm going to say I'm also disappointed with that they didn't necessarily have more people die, but it's not because I want it to be. And I want to talk about you know two things really quickly here is that I'm disappointed they didn't kill more people off, not because I think they should have to, but because of the way it was marketed. And if you're going to say like, oh, we're building up to this you know huge fight where there's going to be carnage and people are going to die, then we need to see that. And really, you only ever thought Eddie was in danger. And of course, we don't really know what's going on with Max, but... I do think you know that she's definitely got a part to play in season five. So as far as dying in this season, it was really only Eddie. But on the flip side of that, I'm of the belief that this show doesn't need its main characters to die to be good. Yes, there's a lot of people in it. There's a lot of main characters. But 
that's the point of the show is to build up all these characters that are really likable and and we like all of them we want them to make it to the end and so personally i'd like to see as many of them come through the end as possible um and unfortunately eddie was not able to make it through this episode but this notion of that we have to kill people off in order for the stakes to be there and and there's just too many i I don't believe that actually because i I think what this show is good at is developing its characters to a point to where we want to see them through the end of the show and obviously that doesn't mean that all of them are going to survive because that's just the nature when you put on a show like this but i also don't think we have to see five people die from the group in order for this to be a successful ending with that being said my second takeaway kind of goes hand in hand um with that because i want to kind of make a season five prediction and i kind of talked about this on on our preview slash review last episode um but i really if you watch this finale i think there's something that's important to explain because one of the questions that i posed to olivia and emma was why i kind of called out i think i don't think vecna is the the general here i think he's kind of the head which was revealed in 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 this finale that he has kind of been behind all of this the entire time seasons one two and three was always him working in the background and so my question was where has he been then you know those three seasons why has he been hiding why not just come out in season one and they answered that if if, you may not caught it but in he told 11 he said i got tired of kind of playing this game I, i sought my own means to open doors and open gates and so in season three when he created that whatever gooey monster that was just eating people and it it took a bite out of Eleven, not only did that take Eleven's powers, but it gave those powers to Vecna, to Henry, to whatever you want to call him. And they made a big point of that with Brenner talking about him, how when he kills or, or, you know, whatever he does, he, he doesn't just kill them, he takes everything from you, absorbs your powers, your memories, all that stuff. And so... That's what happened there is he was able to take Eleven's power to open gates. And therefore, in season four, as he's killing these people, um, gates are opening up. And so that was the whole point of, of you know, biting her and, and is was not just to take her powers, but more importantly, so that he could come back uh, into the real world. And so I thought that was that was really interesting. And my big point of that is, is I think in season five, we're going to have to have 11 die in some way that's my prediction i think you know stranger things does a really good job of, of paying homage to a lot of shows and movies that they love and i think this is kind of a harry potter horcrux situation to where Voldemort had a little bit of himself and harry harry had a little bit of himself and Voldemort. both of them had to kind of die in some way and we noticed the only reason that gates are opened up in the first place is why because of the existence of 11 and now Vecna has some of that in him so obviously I think he needs to die but I would not be surprised here if in some way or form Eleven needs to die for the Upside Down to officially be closed because it seems like as long as she is on the earth there's always going to be a way to kind of let that world come into the real world and so whether it's like Harry Potter where he dies but not actually or dies for real I think that might be one of the main endings of, of the show is that we, we're going to have to see Eleven, uh, you know, take one for the team here in some way. Which brings me to my last point is a lot of people speculate, you know, what's going to be the, the arc of season five, right? Obviously now Vecna is in the real world or he, we figure he will be the upside down is coming to Hawkins. Um, one interesting theory that I've heard and, and I want to throw around is that, you know, we saw a lot of clock imagery this season. And, you know, the 
all those people who were killed by Vecna always saw that clock and we keep seeing these flashbacks and memories and things like that that's Vecna's whole thing as he goes into your memories I wonder if we're not going to see some time of some kind of time travel as a plot here in season five and maybe not I, I honestly don't know if I love the idea of time travel but I could definitely see that's the direction the show goes and so that'll be really interesting another thing with that is you know when L goes into Max's head at the end and nothing's there you know, I think that's kind of the concept there of, you know, Vecna took her memories um, and she, she, he really has everything that she is. And so will killing Vecna release that back into her? Is she, you know, going to remain in that coma until Vecna is killed? I don't know. That's really interesting. So is there some time travel aspect here where Elle goes back or, or someone does to to stop all of that? And that's going to be, I think, what's really interesting is that they have a lot of different ways they could go with the show um in season five and i'm just excited to see it play out overall love the finale like i said i know a lot of people were disappointed that eddie died but then that not enough people died glad my boy steve my boy steve made it through uh and i think overall we got really good television obviously you can pick apart a lot of different things but i would say season four is definitely one of my favorite seasons um and i think you know they've set themselves up for a really good finish to the show all right, that's going to conclude our episode today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll definitely have another episode coming out next week. Still a little bit undecided what we're going to discuss. I know not many of you uh, get at me, but if you do like you know, us talking about some things outside of sports, you know, let me know what you would like to hear about, whether that be shows or movies or something else. I say if you made it to this point of the episode, thank you so much for listening. Be one of our longer ones. Uh, we'll see you next time.